Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. Four individuals who sufficiently concerned Montreal area police that they're being investigated for being radicalized. And one of the individuals, at least one, had been spending some considerable time visiting ISIS sites and another one, repeat visits to the sites on how to make improvised explosive devices. So not everybody, I don't think any of them were fired. One of them has, was moved away from having access to planes and to, um, to runways. Scott Newark is a uh, former Alberta Crown attorney and former um, policy advisor to the Federal Minister for Public Safety and was the uh, security advisor to both the federal and Ontario governments post 9-11. Scott, you know this, this story very well. Where, where do you start? What's most important to you? Because what people want to know is why were individuals not fired or suspended? And I understand that I probably don't have any maybe fireable uh, cause or evidence. It's, it's individual freedoms versus, what, the law? Uh, I mean, is this what it breaks down to? No, and I mean, part of the difficulty on this, Roy, is that uh, there is no sort of official report that we can uh, look to for the specific facts on it. This is essentially a report about a what sounds like an investigative journalist uh, investigation. Uh, My understanding is that these sound like people who had gone through the uh, screening that is required because it's a special kind of a location at an airport, uh, they had obtained the uh, the necessary accreditation, uh, and there's uh, if, if this is like other airports, and I'm pretty sure this one is as well too. There's different, um, essentially, um, uh, site access qualifications given to different employees, and then along the way, after they had obtained this, somehow uh, people got became aware of the fact of the details that you described about two people in particular that um, uh, had some were. I think, you know, displaying some uh, disturbing tendencies in relation to Islamic radicalization. It, you can't tell from the material that's been in the media exactly how that occurred. I mean, was that, uh, for example, other employees? There's references to these communications being spread on social media. Was that, so therefore, maybe was that other employees who notified uh, uh, the uh, airport authority or one of the police agencies there? Uh, or somebody else outside that did that, but somehow they gained information about this. And my understanding is that um, all four had their security classifications revoked, at least in one case, one of the people that you described uh, wasn't fired, however. He was just simply moved away, theoretically, from places where he could access you know, higher security areas like, uh, like the aircraft or the, uh, the runways, things like that. So that of itself raises some questions about, well, you know, wait a minute. Uh, and there is definitely a balancing of interest that takes place here. But when people in today's world want to work at high-security locations like airports, we are absolutely entitled to ask questions about them, first of all, to see whether they are qualified to work in those locations. And by qualified, I mean that they don't, have sec- they don't raise security concerns. And that secondly... You know, after they are approved, that they don't engage in activities that uh, cause us to uh, have those same concerns. So, so on the was one it, hand, Scott, is know, it, it's a good thing that this information yeah. was brought to somebody's attention, but this this issue, uh, as is so many often the case, raises a lot of questions. So if you're hired by an airport and you have access to planes and, and runways and you have that kind of security clearance, do you sign any sort of contractual agreement with the with the employer, with the federal government, that you will not do this, that you will do this, that you will abide by the following expectations, rules, and commitments? Is that is that kind of form signed or yeah, not? There will be something like that. This okay. Is governed by so Transport what I'm, Canada. What I'm getting at, though, is this: 
you mentioned that they move one individual away from, and I mentioned this as well, away from planes and runways. Uh, is it good enough to just react to one individual's behavior, um, or do you have to look, cast a wider net and look for who else might be involved at the airport? Because one airport in, uh, employee was on television saying, oh, this place is like a sieve. Yeah, and, and this is not the only airport where that uh, has I wouldn't occurred. think so. I, I started having some uh, involvement in these kinds of issues back years before 9-11 when I was with the police association, and we were dealing with the presence of organized crime groups at seaports. It's the same basic kind of an idea. Because of the work that's being done in the location, there was specialized screening that uh, had to take place, and there was an acknowledgement you know, that uh, you had to continue those standards, you had to report certain, uh, any kinds of incidents like charges or things like that. Uh, and not everybody, by the way, who works at an airport has access to every location in the airport. They're called uh, RAKES, Restricted Access Identity Cards. And that's one of the things that, that I, rem- I also recall, I used to sit on the Chiefs of Police Aviation Security Conference, and their number one, or committee, and their number one concern of the police agencies involved is what they called non-passenger screening, which is exactly these guys, to make sure that, in effect, people weren't able to access portions of the airport, the higher security places, that they didn't have the approval to do. So um, that is an issue that is always going to be with us where we have to balance this stuff. I mean, you don't simply pass a rule that says that anybody who goes to a mosque can't work at an airport, but equally, it is entirely legitimate for us to be asking questions about the kind of activity like was described in this investigation, because for somebody to be displaying that kind of activity is sufficient grounds to say, well, okay, you know, but you're not going to be working at an airport. We're not going to take that risk. And that's the kind of analysis that has to be done on an ongoing basis. What I'm curious about as well is what standards do you have to uh, meet? What, what are the parameters that, uh, that, that, that if, you, if you break through those parameters, if you, if you break the rules, what are the rules that, uh, that exist to, uh, to make sure that you are actually living within the expectations of working at an airport? In other words, what caused, what might have caused these four individuals to be identified? Well, my, my guess is, just from the, what I've read in the media, is that probably um, either so, some of their co-workers at the airport or people that they were communicating with on social media, probably, you know, and who knew that they worked at an airport, yeah. probably recognized that, you know, this was of concern and alerted authorities that therefore prompted, you know, some investigations into these people. Well, doesn't that speak volumes about airport security? I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Doesn't that speak volumes about airport security? Well, sure, but it, although in fairness, it's not just airport security. It's you're dealing with any kind of a uh, location that has security ramifications to it. And in today's world, uh, you know, that, that includes, you know, generically mass population venues. Airports have developed into a specialized target, obviously, for these guys. And that's why it's appropriate to ask those kinds of questions. Yeah. But you're talking about an awful lot of people who are working in a lot of different kinds of uh, uh, job functions. Um, and as I say, the thing I think in particular for me is to make sure that not only is the screening done initially and done properly initially, but the information is, is shared with all of the law enforcement agencies, something I think the RCMP has concerns about, but also that it's got this ongoing aspect to it, like is demonstrated in this case. Uh, because that's the nature of the world in which we live, is that people get radicalized, people, you know, uh, develop risk profiles that they didn't have at the time that they signed up, and we have to be aware of it based on the nature of the location. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, Scott, does one government react differently? Would we have seen a different response to the situation from a conservative government of Stephen Harper to the reaction we're seeing or aren't seeing yet from the Trudeau government? Or or is a lot of it done under the surface, as it were? Yeah, I I think that is uh, probably a fair comment to make. uh, uh, And and in fairness as well, too, the nature, as I tried to uh, mention before, the nature of the threat environment that you're dealing with means that there is... There really isn't a simple, you know, um, do this and everything is uh, completely safe answer to things. Uh, if you're dealing with uh, something like an airport where you have so many people that are uh, employed, you want to have initial screening. 
I think the biggest uh, thing that, that probably requires some uh, uh, additional and, uh, uh, work is in uh, making sure that people only have access to the areas that they should have access to, which means using different kinds of technologies to mean that, you know, like when somebody opens a door, that not that three people can't go through that kind of thing. But the concern that was expressed, for example, in the email that you read is entirely accurate. I mean, it, that, that has been the experience um, in different airports around the world. The uh, uh, Professional uh, uh, Custom Services Union, I, I recall, in uh, France expressed concern about the number of Islamist-inspired uh, people that were working at the uh, French airports. Uh, in uh, Egypt and in uh, Mogadishu airports, the belief is that there were explosives actually loaded on airplanes. I mean, it is a real concern that will be going on that uh, just because of the nature of the environment and the fact that it has this sort of symbolic uh, target for these uh, guys. Uh, and that, that leads me, if I, if I can, to the one other thing that I think is uh, we need to actually actively look at. We've got to make sure that we've got the appropriate and best use of law enforcement resources at airports precisely because of the potential target that they are. Your listeners, Roy, will probably be amazed to know that, you know, there's uh, different police agencies that are at the, uh, the airports, uh, the RCMP are at international airports, local police, not in very great numbers, uh, but as well, of course, the Canada Border Services Agency officers are there because they're at the international airports, and those officers are now armed. But you know what? Because of a, a Transport Canada uh, restriction, the CBSA officers who are there have to lock their guns in a cupboard. They're not allowed to wear them. So can you imagine if somebody comes running through the airport screaming Allah Akbar and shooting people and you've got a CBSA officer, what's he supposed to do, hide under the desk? It's those kinds of modernizations, I think, and actually using, making sure that we're using the best kinds of resources and the best kinds of intelligence that is what's necessary. But I don't want to underestimate that this is always going to be an ongoing challenge, but it's a good idea that you pay attention to this kind of stuff like this, uh, these reports that were done that uh, uh, you've mentioned so that you can learn from them and try to, you know, adjust uh, because the threat is not going away anytime soon. Let me ask you this question quickly, former Crown Attorney. Um, you know, the federal government, there's a committee that's looking now into Islamophobia and uh, oh, yeah. what Islamophobia is, although they haven't defined it, but they're going to come back in about, was it eight months, 240 days? They're going to come back with a report on how to deal with Islamophobia. Is it possible that if this committee, parliamentary committee, uh, provides a broad-based definition of Islamophobia and says if you're approaching, if you're taking this approach publicly or privately in conversation that you're an Islamophobe, do you think the kind of story that we're talking about now could fall into the category of being Islamophobic, depending on what, the, what this committee come up, comes up with? Uh, no. Uh, I don't think, if, for example, the committee was to make that kind of a recommendation, I think that would be so stupid people would just reject it uh, completely out of hand. Um, you know, I, I like to refer to myself as uh, Islamocognizant. In other words, I'm aware of all of the aspects of Islamism, which is the political nature of Islam. And that phrase, by the way, Islamophobia, that actually has a political history to it. The Organization for Islamic Cooperation, which is, I think it's 58 different Islamic countries, they've created an organization, and they've been pushing this notion for uh, uh, more than a decade. Yeah. And the idea is, is that they... Uh, want to have the same kind of condemnation of what they call, quotation marks, Islamophobia, which when, it, when you drill down to it, what it really means is no criticism of the religion of Islam. All right. Okay, so you're not supposed to, according to this, the, the uh, as I understand the meaning of it, and I invite people to, you know, check it out. Yeah, I only have now. a few now, seconds, Scott. It that long to find out, folks, yeah. um, that you're not allowed to question or to analyze okay. or even criticize any of the tenets or practices of, of the, the, the different kinds of uh, uh, tenets of Islam, that's not who we are. Okay, in Scott, I've got to run. We, you know, we have the uh, self-confidence and the courage right. to be able to ask questions about things and to offer okay. comment. My friend, I have to run. I thank you for the time. All right, Roy. Scott Newark, former Crown Attorney in Alberta. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Bernice Thomas is uh, the sister of Canadian Robert Hall, who, with his uh, partner Maritas Flor and fellow Canadian John Ridsdale, was abducted by the ISIS-aligned Philippine terror group Abu Sayyaf. 
Um, Bernice Thomas is with us now to speak about her brother's captivity and his death at the hands of terrorists who had been demanding a ransom and talk about what the federal government's involvement was as well. And Lee Humphrey is an international security consultant. He was just in the Philippines and knows much of the background story of the abductions and murders of Canadians Robert Hall and John Ridsdale and how the mission fell apart. Lee's been a guest on this program many times. Bernice, thank you for taking the time to talk to us and, and our condolences on the loss of your brother. Thanks so much, Roy, and um, I really appreciate your interest and your listeners' interest in, the, in my brother's story. We're all very interested, keenly interested in this country when something happens, something terrible happens to one of our fellow Canadians, and particularly when the federal government has an opportunity to, to intervene successfully. And Lee, that, that opportunity existed for the federal government, did it not? It absolutely existed, Roy. Uh, the, the federal government had a, a great opportunity working in conjunction with other Western allies, uh, specifically the United States and the Philippines military, uh, who worked tirelessly together to, to uh, ensure that there was an opportunity to rescue these two men before they were executed. Benice, your brother and Mr. Ridsdale, they weren't specifically targeted. They were just... They were they were victims of opportunity for this terror group, correct? As as far as I understand it, and you know through research and what I've I've been able to uncover, it seems that you know Abu Sayyaf and uh, others of their ilk naturally would target um, sort of expat destinations, and um, this was one of those incidences where um, you know. They they preyed on a marina where there were several expats, and so not targeted particularly at John or or Robert. Just luck of the draw. Luck of the, the 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 unlucky reality that they were they were there and they had a light on when this Abu Sayyaf group showed up at uh, at the marina. When did you first find out about your brother's kidnapping, and was that group ever in touch with you directly or with your family? Um. The night that Robert was kidnapped, um, just as I was going to bed, I heard a brief sort of 30-second uh, blurb on a radio station I was listening to um, that said that there was a possibility two Canadians had been kidnapped in the Philippines. And I, of course, was cons- concerned that it might be Robert. And then, you know, about 4.35 in the morning, got a phone call from another family member saying that he had been kidnapped. And, um, yeah. So, and it was your brother. It was your brother and his partner who were kidnapped first. Is that is that correct? Yes. Um, so, from my understanding, Abu Sayyaf boarded another boat before they boarded my brother's boat, and the people on that boat uh, were able to fight their way free and jumped overboard and swam away, and so. Abu Sayyaf moved to the next boat, which happened to be my brother's. And um, and again, just by circumstance, he happened to be up at that moment and turned a light on, which alerted them to the fact that there was somebody in that boat. Yeah. Did that group contact you at any time? Um, we did have, um, we did speak with uh, Abu Sayyaf directly um, throughout this you know, trying to negotiate with them. Um, But, you know, we know the outcome. It didn't work. Yeah. Um, Canada has a no-ransom policy, Lee, but what opportunities were available? What was was put in place over a period of time as far as assets in the Philippines were concerned that would have been ready to go and rescue both uh, Mr. Hall and Mr. Ridsdale? Well, almost immediately, within within a couple of weeks of the kidnapping, uh, the Canadian government deployed a, a small team of advisors uh, to meet with the uh, their counterparts in the Philippines and develop uh, various strategies for negotiation and for rescue, uh, and to determine exactly who who was holding them, where they were being held, etc. That escalated as time went on. Uh, within the Philippines to include U.S. assets that provided communications intercepts, satellite uh, surveillance, drones, etc. The Canadian uh, military uh, helped the Philippine military design and develop a a formal uh, hostage rescue plan 
uh, the Philippine military uh, in approximately December 2015 uh, began putting uh, selected members from a Marine unit uh, together and, and began that training process uh, with the anticipation that once the camp was finally determined and they had sufficient uh, evidence uh, that the, uh, the Canadians uh, as well as the, the Filipina and the Norwegian uh, were in one spot and that they could affect a rescue that they would then do so. Um, they had that opportunity in, in March, uh, mid to late March of, of 2016, and, and the Canadian government uh, failed. Well, let me ask you about. Uh, to, let me ask you about that. Let me ask you about that because it, there would be considerable value, would there not, in the battle against international terrorism if a number of governments combined. In this case, it would have been Canada, the Philippines, and the United States would have combined to effect a rescue of the two Canadians who were kidnapped and being threatened with death. There would have been some value to pulling off a military intervention and saving the lives of these two Canadians. And yet, our federal government, if I understand this correctly, it was our federal government that dropped the ball, and more specifically and more directly, the Prime Minister of Canada. Is that right? Well, Bonnie's can speak to this uh, more effectively than I, but, uh, you know, the, the Canadian government did something truly horrific here. Not only did the Prime Minister uh, say no, uh, to this rescue, but they turned around and did something I've never seen before. They went to the families and said, will you authorize or will you agree to a military rescue, which put the onus on, on those most affected and those most emotionally uh, involved uh, instead of uh, telling the families after the fact that a military attempt had been made. And uh, and I find that just horrific. It uh, is. Bonisa, uh, could speak to that uh, better than Well, I. it's certainly not leadership. It's not the kind of leadership that uh, that won wars in, in, uh, in, in, in times gone by and not so long ago. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Bonisa Thomas is uh, my guest. She is the sister of Canadian Robert Hall who was abducted and uh, he was killed by the Philippine ISIS-affiliated terror group Abu Sayyaf. He, along with uh, Canadian John Ridsdale, both of them were abducted. And uh, also abducted was um, Mr. Hall's partner in life, Maritas Floor. She's been extremely, extremely important from, uh, from what I understand, Benice. You have a very close relationship with Ms. Floor. Yes, I do. What about um, what about the situation with our federal government? So they have these the as, the assets in place. The plan is in place to rescue your brother and Mr. Ridsdale. How do you how were you led to understand things developed in Ottawa after that took place, which eventually ended up with Canada doing nothing? Um. Well. Uh, in, in regard to military action, at, at one point we were offered, you know, seven options of, of how this, this could possibly go down. Six of those options involved ridiculously giving money and, and, and trying to negotiate with we'll give you a bit and we'll take one person <clears throat> sort of thing. Um, but one of those options was military action. Um, and and something to be really clear about here i mean for me it it it, it was a no brainer of course military action um, but it 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 was extraordinary how we were kept in the dark how little information we got about anything and then asked to make life and death decisions about things and you know in the aspect of of something like this happening. I mean, there's really only four possible resolutions. One is rescue, one is ransom, one is escape, and one is death. And in this instance, um, the person directing the process by his own admission was Justin Trudeau, and he chose door number four. He chose literally to put his hands in his pocket and turn his back. And um, so, we 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 ended up with the outcome that happened. Isn't it? It's just bizarre that the federal government of this country would come to the families of uh, your family and Mr. Ridsdale's family and ask you to make decisions on what they should do. 
you could, you you know what 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 you want done. You want your loved one back safe and sound. Exactly, and um, you know this is simply one of hundreds of examples of the lack of knowledge, experience, uh, capability, preparation that our government possesses in incidents like this. What about Mr. Trudeau? If I bring up the Prime Minister's name and ask you for your sense of his engagement in the threats to your brother and to Mr. Ridsdale and, in fact, to uh, Marita's floor because she was also kidnapped. Uh, When I bring up Justin Trudeau's name, how do you respond? How do you react? Hmm. Um, Clearly, he, again, by his own admission, was responsible for directing the process in this. He was the person with the greatest amount of influence on the outcome. Um, And to me, it appeared throughout all of this that he was more concerned about his image than the lives of two Canadians. And over and over and over again, that's what I witnessed. For instance, when he had an opportunity to visit the Philippines early on in the hostage-taking, he arrived there with no sort of um, comportment of seriousness or somberness. He arrived like a rock star, took selfies with everyone, and his departing words, when my brother and John Ridsdale and Tess and Yarden were shackled just a few hundred miles from him, was, I hope it all works out. That's incredibly disturbing and again shows the complete lack of, of concern or care or urgency and, and, and a, just an alarming lack of understanding of the situation. I hope it all works out. I hope it all works out. Can you imagine? No. No. <laughs> No, I can't. This is the leader of this country. This is the Prime Minister of Canada. And I hope it all works out. It's not the position that the Prime Minister of Canada should be taking. What the Prime Minister of Canada should have done is gotten out of the way of the specialized military units, let them do what they needed to do, and and get the two Canadians and, and the other hostages out and free. If he wanted to take bows uh, later on and snap a few selfies with a few people... That would have been acceptable, I suppose, but the objective was to get the Canadians out, not to hear the leader of the country say, I hope it all works out. Indeed, and, you know, it brings to mind, was there ever a goal of rescue? I'm sorry? It, it, it just makes me think, was there ever a goal? Like, what was the goal of our prime what was there? Was, was there a goal? This is starting to was sound... You know, Lee, this is starting to sound a little bit related to what Alison Azar faced, and that is a prime minister who put his arms around her and said, I'm leaving your children's file on my desk, and I promise you as a father and the prime minister of Canada that I'm going to get your children back. And when the opportunity presented itself and Iran was ready to take action, what did he do? He shut down communication between the RCMP and the Iranians or, or Interpol. So there's another example of Mr. Trudeau's intervention. But let me just ask you this, Lee. You you just returned from the Philippines. Are there frustrated military and political officials there, frustrated with Canada's unwillingness to move forward with the rescue of the hostages? Well, I certainly uh, uh, saw a different attitude uh, amongst the commanders on that. I met with the commanders of both Eastern and Western Mindanao Command, and I met with every single task force and regional police chief throughout Mindanao over a 10-day period. And frustrated, I guess, is the polite word we're going to use on the radio today, so you get to stay on the radio. Um, They were far more than frustrated. What I didn't know um, when last we spoke about this, and I apologize to Bonnie for not having been able to speak to her in advance of this, was there was an entire broader plan that I was unaware of last summer I knew very, very, a great deal about the rescue mission. What I didn't know about was the broader shaping of the battlefield, 
that was going on, the efforts to isolate this camp from other Abu Sayyaf units, the broader military strategy that was involved of deception, the over a period of, of two months in February and, and, and uh, March of 2016, in anticipation of a raid, once they had d- determined that the location of the camp, uh, the Filipino military carried out six major offensives in the area. They, they suffered 32 killed in action, 56 wounded in action, in order to shape the battlefield to the point where this camp was had as few guards as possible, and it was as isolated from Abu Sayyaf uh, reinforcements as possible. They did the same thing after Mr. Ridsdale was killed when they suffered another 18 killed and 22 wounded. So, you know, these guys suffered 50 dead and 80 wounded, preparing for what they believed was going to be a successful rescue mission. And they are incredibly angry uh, at the Canadian government and and the lack of, of uh, response from the government. I mean, the government went silent uh, after APEC uh, and and simply stopped responding to the to the to the request of the Filipino government. At one point, our foreign minister uh, at the time, Stefan Dion, refused to take the call of the foreign minister of the Philippines for three days. Seriously, refused to answer the phone because he was afraid of what he was going to be asked or, or, or required to, to say no to. So, I mean, frustrated is, is the polite word, I guess, Roy. Um, it's incredible. This goes, this goes beyond incompetence. This is uh, very, very disturbing, and there, there has been no... Uh, it's, moving, and, it's moving towards purposeful, Roy. It really is. I mean... And I have, I have 20... Trudeau, I keep saying this today, but I have 20 seconds late. Investigation. Yeah. Um, nothing. That any investigation has occurred. We'll uh, yeah, no investigation. We'll we'll need to, we'll talk again for sure. And um, Bernice, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. And again, condolences to you and the Ridsdale family and the on your losses. Um, we'll we'll talk again. Thank you, Bernice. Thank you. And Lee, always good to talk to you. You provide us with a tremendous amount of information that we otherwise would not have. Thank you. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. While Kevin O'Leary, Maxime Bernier, and Kelly Leach are big names in the leadership race for the Conservative Party of Canada, former Air Force Captain, Lawyer, Veterans Affairs Minister Aaron O'Toole is building support and is seen as a possible consensus candidate who may be the eventual successor to Prime Minister Stephen Harper. So why Aaron O'Toole? And what does he think of Justin Trudeau and some of the things the Prime Minister has done, like describe Canada as a, the first post-nation state? Still have little idea of what the Prime Minister is getting at, and the only thing I could think of is negative. Aaron O'Toole's been a guest on this program in the past, impressed with what he's had to say in the last conversations. Mr. O'Toole, uh, you're getting closer and closer to the day that uh, the Conservative Party of Canada will decide on who becomes the leader. How confident are you? Well, look, Roy, every time I appear on your show, I get one step closer to it. So I just got to be on more regularly. So you think we've got something to do with that? (laughs) Well, listen, you're a show that covers the important issues. You know, uh, I was listening to the segue. Justin Trudeau's comments on, you know, the non-paying of international ransoms and his ridiculous uh, approach to that issue just shows how naive he is. I have some familiarity with this, and I know Lee Humphreys uh, myself. Um, this is an incredibly naive approach to take. Countries do this a lot more sophisticatedly with a combination of military uh, intervention or security intervention and um, not making statements like he has. So on a whole range of things, Roy, Justin Trudeau's not in step with Canadians, and that's why I think we can win the next election if we have the right leader. If Aaron O'Toole is the Prime Minister of Canada and you have Filipino military, American military assets, and Canadian um, special forces assets in place to rescue Robert Hall and John Ridsdale and Maritas Floor, uh, Mr. Hall's life partner, what action do you take? The Prime Minister, the current Prime Minister said, well, I hope things turn out okay, walked away apparently. What does Aaron O'Toole do as Prime Minister of Canada? We take a proactive stance. Look, our, our special forces are amongst the best in the world, bar none. 
I have many friends that have served and do serve within our CSOR and JTF2. Uh, so upon the invitation of a sovereign nation like the Philippines, we we can operate in conjunction with them or train. So Canada, you know, we don't willy-nilly invade, but at, at an invitation, we could participate in a rescue mission. Or there's often discussions about the threat of such missions leading to release terms. So usually what has happened in these international cases are that negotiations do not take place in public, nor does the Prime Minister make uh, platitude-laden speeches like Justin Trudeau does. It just shows he does everything for what he feels the newspapers will write about, even if it's not the right decision for Canada or the pe- the families involved. Mr. O'Toole, um, what do you think Canadians and what do you think Conservative Party of Canada members want from their next leader specifically? Is there a demand, do you think, a grassroots demand for the next Conservative Party leader to connect more with the grassroots expectations of the type which delivered Brexit to the UK and Donald Trump to the White House. We've been talking about a movement now for some years, and it's it's been coming to fruition. And and you know the results as well if, as me, if, if not better. So what do you make of and how committed would you be to listening to the people who have this grassroots sense of we're fed up with the status quo, and if you want us to vote for you, you'd better be ready to change things? Well, absolutely. It is about listing, Roy, and that's what I've tried to do throughout my public life. One thing I will say is we don't have the same degree of disconnect or dislocation that we saw in the U.S. and the U.K., in large part because of the Harper government. We had the best-performing economy in the G7. We had a balanced budget. We had a million-plus new jobs after the recession. The same was not the case in the United States, where hundreds of thousands were displaced and worried about uh, the future of their children. I like to say the reason we don't have the same degree of populist discontent is the fact that we had a conservative government that was not about big government, wasn't about feathering their own nests, which is what we see the Liberals doing already. Harper and our team ran a fairly strong, lean, and effective government. So while there's some discontent, Roy, absolutely, and we can listen and adjust to that, I think the same level that we saw with Brexit that we saw in the U.S. election doesn't exist because we had a conservative government. I'm not so sure that I would agree with you. Uh, just based on what I hear on the air, when I, the phone calls that I've received now, and I'm talking about for just a few weeks or a few months, but for a protracted period of time, and I don't think people really care that much to hear liberals arguing against conservatives and conservatives arguing against liberals and somewhere bringing the NDP into the conversation. What people want to hear is, what are you going to do? What are you going to do to satisfy the hunger that people have to be actually engaged in running this country or having a role to play between election dates? That's important, Mr. O'Toole. I, I want to tell you the, what I cannot stress enough what I've been hearing. And, and, and if, if, if any political candidate issues the same old, same old, that political candidate's going to pay a price. Absolutely. That's why I've been saying we need to fix government. I think we are using systems, Roy, that in some cases are 50 and 60 years old uh, and expecting them to meet the needs of today. Most of the plans I'm coming out with are rather revolutionary in thought but aren't advocating revolution. I'll give, give us I'll give us the one give us the one that matters most. The one that matters most is what's called Generation Kickstart. Right now, we have our young people leaving uh, school or university, college with the highest debt levels, the worst employment prospects, and if they don't succeed, we can't afford OAS because right now the programs we we have in Canada were set up when six people were entering the workforce for every one retiring. In, a, in the next 10 years, that number will go down to slightly more than two entering the workforce for everyone retiring. Justin Trudeau is increasing the age uh, for, uh, for OES and things like this, or reducing it, sorry, when we were increasing it. We can't afford our country the way Justin Trudeau is managing it. So my Kickstart program is about making sure this generation that we have succeeds, that we don't see brain drain taking place when President Trump lowers taxes. And it's about thinking about things differently, giving people a kick in life 
so that they can help secure the programs and the way of life we enjoy. I I, I absolutely uh, agree with you. But show me something. Operation Kickstart sounds good. But I I don't know that people are listening to terminology any longer. Um, People want, want to know specifics of what you're prepared to do. What makes you different from the other guy, in other words? Well, listen, uh, listen. I the other guy I'm, in your party, the other guys and gals in your party. I, I think I'm the only one with the track record. Uh, I'm not a career politician, Roy. I've been in for four years, 12 years in the military, 10 years in the corporate sector. I get it when people have to go into harm's way, you know, because I, I was in uniform. I've worked in the private sector. So what I say is I want to fix a lot of things where government is totally out of touch. We were so caught up in in these large TPP organizations uh, negotiating for trade that we forgot that we should be trading and doing more with the countries that are most closely aligned to us. So I have a policy called Kanzuk, where we're going to do more with Australia, New Zealand, and the UK, especially in a post-Brexit UK world, where we should make sure we have a strong trade and security relationship with them. That's, a, that's an idea, Roy, that was first proposed by Winston Churchill, and it hasn't been done. So I brought it back to debate. And you know what? There's tens of thousands of young people who've reached out to our campaign interested in this idea about partnering more with the, the nations that make sense rather than going in these large blocks. So, you know, my ideas are really, really appealing to people. I'm also trying to appeal not just based on people's frustrations and anger, because I don't think we're going to win if that's what we're offering. We have to have a positive, optimistic view based on conservative principles and a leader who throughout his entire life has gotten things done, whether in uniform, whether in private sector, whether it's my charity work or in cabinet turning around veterans affairs in less than one year. I'm a doer, Roy, and I think people are are finally seeing we need a positive, conservative, get things done guy. I liked you the first time we talked to him, liking you more now. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Former Veterans Affairs Minister in the Stephen Harper government, member of parliament, of course, and running for the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada, which would put him directly opposite Justin Trudeau in 2019, along with whoever the NDP selects. And, of course, there are other parties involved as well. Uh, Mr. O'Toole, let me just bring up three names together and you can probably immediately identify who they're going to be. Kevin O'Leary, Maxime Bernier, and Dr. Kelly Leach. Those are the three names who are most frequently talked about instinctively when, when it comes to the leadership of the Conservative Party. More recently, your name has been talked about a great deal. So what is it that sets you apart from, and what makes you a preference, a better, the better Conservative leader than O'Leary, than, uh, than Bernier, and then Leach? Well, the biggest thing, Roy, is I can actually win the next election by beating Trudeau. Um, they, they are your three names that you hear the most because they've done one of two things. They've courted controversy or celebrity. And, you know, we're not going to win with that approach. And so why I've been gaining strength has been I've been working harder than all of them. I visited more ridings and spoken to more members than almost all of them combined, to be honest with you. And why? Because I needed to get my name out there, and they wanted needed people to hear my vision. And I'm one that can keep the party together and actually win over 10 to 15% of the voters that we need to win back. So a lot of people in this race have been, um, you know, preaching to the converted and, and doing it in a loud or controversial way. But we have to show why conservatives can actually win back voters that left for whatever reason and beat Trudeau in the next election. So I've tried to not take controversial or, or you know, uh, extreme positions on things that most people don't even think are authentic. I've been ba- based, basing my campaign on my own track record of getting things done uh, with a conservative approach. All right, let me run through a couple of items uh, with you very quickly here. Do you subscribe to the liberal view federally and uh, the province of Ontario, most definitely, that there are growing numbers of racists in Canada? Liberal politicians accuse Canadians of a racist bent, and particularly white Canadians are being tarred with the racism brush, in my view. What do you say to this this, this repeat message from the Liberal Party that racism, racism is an increasing problem in this country. Do you agree or disagree with that? Uh, I disagree. And in fact, 
division created in this debate, Roy, like Motion 103, was a liberal ploy to actually try and divide people by using a term that was controversial and, and wasn't widely uh, defined, Islamophobia, and actually foisting it into the House of Commons in a way that was meant to actually divide people, in some cases by suggesting that there should be a double standard to free speech between criticisms of, of one faith or another. Everyone, no faith is immune from criticism in a free society. So they've actually been playing these issues to try and sow seeds of division. And I think it's shameful. I'm the only leadership candidate that actually reached out to the Liberal MP that brought the motion, challenged her to change it to, sh- to secure free speech protections. And when she didn't, I'm then able to say, look, this isn't about racism or division as much as it is about politics being played by the Liberals. The same Liberals from Queen's Park are now advising Justin Trudeau. So we shouldn't be surprised that Ontario and the federal Liberals are, are one and the same, Roy. And uh, the M- MP in question uh, refused to talk to you, as, uh, as I understand. No, I did have a, I did did have have a, conversation a, good, with a good conversation with her. Yeah. But you know what? She considered some of my proposals yeah. and said she'd get back to me, Roy. She never did. Okay, I that's learned what it was. that she rejected my proposal. She get back to you. What do you make of this? What do you make then of this Islamophobia issue? Two hundred and forty days. The liberal, or at least the, the the federal committee, is going to be investigating what hasn't been defined. At first, I thought that how can you how can you investigate something that you haven't defined? But then I've come to the conclusion that it really is quite clever to do that because if you don't define it, it allows you to explore or at least talk about all sorts of parameters. But if if Aaron O'Toole is the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada and you have to respond to uh, a charge of Islamophobia based on what this parliamentary committee will come up with, how do you do that? Well, the first off is I'd look to the first time it came up with respect to the MP who brought this motion. So what's interesting, and I wrote this in The Sun, Roy, a year ago, MP Khalid wrote, uh, gave a speech on discrimination in the House of Commons. It was the International Day to End Discrimination. In her speech, she didn't mention the term Islamophobia. Yet months later, when the Liberals wanted to uh, cause a political stunt in the House, she finally made her private member's motion based on that word. The first time the word was brought up by her in debate in the, in the Human Rights Committee, the very witness that answered the question said that that term can be different things in different countries. Right. So it could mean blasphemy laws overseas where it means other things here. So the Liberals know this, and they're trying to exploit divisions. That's what I think is shameful. So I won't subscribe to that. We have laws that are in place now in terms of hate speech. Mr. O'Toole, thank you for the time today. We'll talk to you again, I'm sure. And good luck with with what lies ahead with the party. Thank you so much, Roy. Take care. Bye-bye. Aaron O'Toole running for the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. It's April Fool's Day. I just realized that a couple of hours ago, actually. Uh, Vaguely aware this morning and then unaware again. And I guess this happens when you get a little bit older. You, I don't, nobody even tries April Fool's jokes on me anymore. What's the best April Fool's gag that was ever played on you all? Ooh. Oh, boy. Who has, who has the answer to that question, right? Well, I'll, I'll just say that you're ready for this. Um, my first day with Cambria was April Fool's Day eight years ago. Roy, where does the time go? I don't know, and here you are. You're still there. <laughs> Vice President of Cambria, Canada. Well, I pulled a good one on my son a few years ago. He was living at the cottage. And, of course, loving the fact that I wasn't there all the time. So on one April Fool's, I sent him an email and said, Honey, I've just been offered a fabulous t- uh, price for the house I have in the city. <laughs> so I'm going to sell and come and live at the cottage. <laughs> of course, he totally had my number. He said, That's great, Mom. Oh, he didn't fall for it. He didn't fall for it. Then there was the day April 1st in Parliament where somebody said, Okay, okay, she's finally agreed not to post her expenses. <laughs> and take the bathroom. And took the bathroom with the, with the, with the big sink. Yeah, and Catherine yes, took a yes, Senate yes, position. That's right. <laughs> well, happy April Fool's, beauties. And to you. So let's start uh, by talking about uh, money a little bit here. 
And uh, there were a couple other things that I want to run by as we go through our segment. The most politically incorrect segment in Canadian radio. So we have the Ontario government, the federal government, ponying up $200 million for Ford for to um, you know help the company and create jobs. That's the government's view and 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 a big splash about this. I'm looking at it and I'm saying, God bless Ford. They're making money now. They're $10 billion in profit. But what are we doing ponying up $200 million for a company that's making billions? And then the other one was the federal government delivering $375 million in loans once again to Bombardier. This is after Quebec shows up with a billion-dollar suitcase. Uh, $375 million for the development of the C-Series planes and the Global 7000 series. Meanwhile, thousands of Bombardier employees laid off and senior executives received a 50% increase in remuneration, which has the chairman now saying, no, take me back to 2015 salary, which I doubt was jump change. So we're talking about a total here of almost $600 million delivered by governments to the corporate sector um, let's go to let's go to the member of parliament to start this one off, or former member of parliament. This, this is uh, Roy. This is the most grotesque form of corporate welfare I've ever seen, like Ford and Bombardier. And it, with Ford, I'm not quite convinced of what the story is because there isn't a, a lot of jobs involved, uh, and production, but Bombardier, again, they can't deliver anything on time. And, you know, for that kind of remuneration for their executives, it just makes my head explode. 50% increase in salary. When's the last time anybody saw that? Anybody Uh, outside of the executive circle? Never. Never. You won't get well, fifty. Well, you won't there's, get fifty. There's a lot of things that are problematic here. You mentioned Roy Ford is not. Uh, you know they've had a very profitable year, uh, years lately. Uh, and how many? How many times have we, the taxpayer, bailed out auto companies? I mean, it's countless, countless. And it's always oh, this is you know this is going to help them do this. But it's it's a constant refrain. They're dependent, and Bombardier is no different. One other little uh, detail, by the way, of this this Ford thing was the federal liberals, under the conservatives, they, they did it too. I mean, I'm, I'm not excusing anybody here. But the conservatives had a piece of legislation that said it was repayable. It was a loan. And the, the liberals just changed that so it's no longer a loan, it's a grant. It's just free money. You can't blame the companies. If somebody offered you free money, you'd be a fool not to take it. But I certainly blame the governments, and it's all about their photo ops. Let's not fool ourselves. We had the, you know, pictures of Wynn and, and Trudeau grinning like idiots on the, you know, covers of, of uh, newspapers about, oh, how they were contributing to the innovation economy. And finally, we're taking money away from perfectly good small and medium-sized businesses who are never big enough to warrant a photo op, but they function, they somehow hire people, pay people, uh, you know, contribute to our prosperity, and they never get a dime of this money. Because they work, they work, they the work all day. They work all day every yeah, day. They yeah. work all day every day. But they're not sucking on the taxpayer. They're teeth. not. They're not. Yeah. And you know, one, one thing, Linda Leatherdale, that I saw was uh, the caption on the bottom of a photograph of Mr. Trudeau and uh, Premier Wynne. What's she laughing about these days? Nine um, <laughs> percent. Yeah. That's, that's pretty close to zero. Um, I wonder if a politician's ever had zero on a poll. Well, we'll find out soon. Now, um, Linda, I, I, saw, I saw this caption on the photograph of, of uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and Premier Wynne being greeted at Ford. And everybody had big smiles on their face. And the caption read, Prime Minister and Premier, something like this, Prime Minister and Premier greeted with big smiles at Ford of Canada. To echo what Catherine said, anytime anybody shows up with $200 million, you're going to get big smiles. <laughs> corporate welfare checks, Roy, corporate welfare checks, and we, the taxpayer of this country, end up footing the bill for this insanity. And when you talk about grants or loans or whatever, just check out the history. Even if it was a loan, they've never been repaid. Every time that we put out corporate welfare checks, I've seen all too often where the company has moved jobs offshore after they have gotten our taxpayer dollars. So, you know, the insanity has to stop, but it hasn't. And Ford, pre-tax, 10 billion U.S. dollars, and we're going to 
cough up this kind of money. Well, and the other thing is, where's the environmental thing? Yeah, they say we're going to have green initiatives with Ford, but meanwhile, they're still producing gas guzzlers, my friend. So yeah, what's wrong with that? Hypocrisy. What's wrong with that? Don't forget the union what's wrong? factor here, Hold on. too. What, what's, the what? unions are behind wait, 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 the wait, wait, wait. unions are behind the scenes trying to extract more money because the Canadian auto industry is not competitive with with uh, many around the world. So they have to suck up the rest of. But hold on, a, hold on, a, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Hold on. Whoa, halt! Please, just just bear with me a second here. We no. need your explanations. What's wrong with gasoline? Hey, listen. I have no What's wrong with, with gasoline? I just got a, I, hey, I've got a gas guzzler, Roy. I'm just saying that they're blowing out of both sides of their cheeks when they say they're going to do the environmental thing, but they're still propping up something that they disagree well, with. Yeah, but the, 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 the reason they punish Alberta, of course, is there aren't many liberal votes there. And I guess we'll find out in the by-elections in two days if there's any liberal votes at all. I hope not, because they don't deserve them. We'll send them all to a sanctuary city near you. I have no idea what that means. We'll take a break. We'll come back with Catherine Swift, Michelle Simpson, Linda Leatherdale, Beauties from the Beast. We have some more questions and more points to get at. CIBC firing 130 longer-term employees in Toronto and delivering their jobs to workers in India, although they've been a little more sneaky about it than the Royal Bank. Oh, can't say that anymore. Than RBC was. Why can't you say Royal Bank or Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce? Not politically correct. Uh, what RBC did was a little more sneaky than what, uh, what CIBC is doing. We'll talk about that with the beauties in just a minute. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Back with Catherine Swift, workingcanadians.ca, Linda Leatherdale at Linda Leatherdale, and Michelle Simpson at Michelle Simpson on Twitter. They're the beauties, I'm the beast, and a uh, story that we talked about I think it was 2013, when RBC had something like 45 jobs that they were moving from Toronto to India, and they brought the people from India who were taking the jobs, you remember this, I'm sure, to Toronto to be trained by the people they were replacing. So that didn't go over very well, and it caused some consternation in Ottawa and some changes in legislation, and now the CIBC is firing 130 longer-term employees in Toronto, and also delivering jobs to workers in India. I think it's Accenture is the company that's the partner to CIBC. But they're being a little more sneaky. They're having the people who are losing their jobs in Toronto train others in Toronto on the jobs. And then the others in Toronto will train the people in India. So they're trying to make keep the waters as calm as they possibly can. Michelle Simpson, is that going to work? Based on the number of people, it may make a ripple but i do know people are tired of it tired of outsourcing you know particularly the companies that uh, utilize call centers and they're in the philippines they're in india and those types of things are what tends to annoy the public you know 130 jobs People, you know, are going to be a bit upset, but it's not the same as entire call centers where you've got hundreds Well, but of Michelle, jobs. you remember how upset people got over 45 jobs. Yeah, no, I, I agree. They, they don't like it. No. And, uh, you know, in, in the U.S., if you get a call center or something, you know, you call through to a company and you get India or the Philippines... Their legislation permits you to say, you know what, I want to speak to someone back in the USA. That's how they dealt with. Well, it. you can say you can say that here too. It just doesn't work. Um, oh, you, it does. It just, just because it's, legi- it, it's legislated in the states. Yeah, that's a, you can. Like I said, you can say that here too. It just doesn't work. Yeah. Right. Now, um, the 130 people, Catherine, I'm angry enough that if I still had an account at CIBC, I'd be closing it. Well, you, you asked the question, are they going to get away with it? Well, first of all, we're talking about it, so I don't think they got away with being sneaky about it, <laughs> or we wouldn't be talking about it. Um, but no, this is, I mean, listen, a lot of large corporations do this, and call centers are, are as we know, technology. I mean, this is the reality. Yeah, but these, aren't, this isn't, yeah. these, are, these aren't call center jobs. These are accounting jobs. Well... 
that too, though. The, yeah. the, the, our, our real, you know, I'm not trying to be a wet blanket here, but the reality is if you can outsource, the market will prevail. And it doesn't mean you have to like it or whatever. Um, and it, given technology and where it's going, boy, there's going to be an awful lot of jobs and not just lower skilled ones. Technology has displaced a lot of lower skilled ones in the past. Now we're getting into uh, more and more jobs. And of course, the telecommunications advances permit accounting and other jobs also to be done offshore. So that's the reality. What, what do you do about it? I think that's the, the pivotal question. Well, it's sure, sure it's the reality. All the powers that our banks have, and they are being investigated for their aggressive sales tactics. I am totally opposed with this. And I believe Justin Trudeau should stand up and say, you know what, these jobs are staying here in Canada. No, 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 you're thinking of Donald Trump. <laughs> well, then call me Trump. And I want to say these banks need to be trumped. The RBC did not get away with it, and they, CIBC should not. And I'll tell you what, Roy, if I had an account there, I'd be pulling you You know what? It really ticks me off that you've got 130 people, 130 families maybe, and these are people who've been on the job at the CIBC, from what I understand, for some considerable, considerable period of time, or whatever my mouth is trying to say. They've been on the job for considerable periods of time. They're then informed their jobs are going to India. They're going to have to train somebody else in Toronto who will then train the person in India. So the job isn't disappearing. The job is just being shipped out to somebody who's going to work for less. So you want to make less? You want to make more? Then if, if I still had an account, I'd be closing it, period. I'm yep. so angry, bro. Well, that's the way people can react, obviously, yep. is a protest. Yep. Yep. I don't have an account there either, so I'm not, I'm not in a position. Okay, so uh, who are you picking on? Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> what about the sunshine clauses? And the oh, yes, please, yeah. go, go, for oh. sure. The $100,000 club <laughs> in Ontario. We have janitors making over $100,000 in Ontario, folks. What? There was a janitor at one of the uh, hydro utilities making 111 grand a year. What's he cleaning? Well, <laughs> cleaning our clocks. <laughs> yeah. And to think that Ontario cleaning Power Generation, the CEO making 1.1 and his predecessor 1.5 million, when across this country, other executives in that area make far less. This is greed at its height. Were you but saying a janitor made one million? I mean, I agree with that, no, you the, about the executives, but it's oh, okay. right across the board. And whenever I hear any government, and I don't care who they are, say, we need more tax dollars, no, you don't. You're wasting our money. Yep. You're paying people that work for government for no good reason. Yep. 25 to 50% more than the identical job would earn in the private sector. And they've got big pensions and early retirements. Anyway, blah, blah. You know yeah. my broken record. But no government should be away, get, able to get away with the statement, we need more of your money, as long as they are wasting billion, tens of billions by the overcompensation. And the, the, whole, the whole bill of compensation in most governments ranges from 50% to 80% of their costs. Catherine, I it's have an idea. Let's get the outsourced bank executives' jobs. No, the dog's in it, too. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Go to India, Mike. Your job's Okay, gone, stop, buddy. stop, stop, please. We've got a dog barking. We've got two people talking. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead, Linda. No, I just said let's outsource the jobs. The bank executives, I'm going to outsource their job to India. Guess what? That OPG executive, his job's going to India. How about that? Okay, I didn't mean to start this. Uh, <laughs> I'm really sorry. sorry. Roy. I'm riled at this topic. Yeah. Well, it bothers me as well. You know, if the job is going to be gone, that's another debating issue perhaps. But if the job is simply being handed to someone else... And, and some, another person's loyalty and commitment to the company means absolutely squat. And, uh, and they're, they're training their, their, their successors, but they're doing it so sneakily that, that really – because I'm what are they doing with my money? If that's the way they treat their employees, what the hell are they doing with my money? Well, they're, well, it, you know they're what, investing Roy? in their stocks. They're ma they, every year they announce their, their, uh, their earnings. They're massive. So that, there's where the money's going. Yeah. Well, that's the whole issue. But wait a minute. I make a record, half. I make a, I'm, hold on. Guys, I make a half a percent interest. How can I possibly complain? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, but it's, it's stockholder value, too. Yeah. Record profits, and they're doing that sort of thing. It's disgusting. It's awful. 
that's and to awful. be devil's advocate, maybe that's why there are record profits, because they're doing that kind of thing. Well, thought, hold on a second. Didn't you represent small business? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I decided I'm presenting the free market view of the universe today. <laughs> I can't. I don't even have a comeback for that. <laughs> so uh, we have almost 30 seconds left before we're out of time for today. Um, was there something? Why don't we to... just mention the disgraceful attempt by the federal liberals to shut down uh, democracy and parliament by limiting debate and cutting the knees off the opposition, etc. Previous governments at least required the buy-in of all parties because of these procedural changes. Yeah. It's not, this one isn't over yet. A lot of people are fighting it, and I know you've had people on your show talking about it, Roy. But Canadians, this is a big deal. You know, it might sound like some arcane thing, but this no, is a big a deal big to hobble Parliament. Okay, beauties, we had Michelle Rempel on, on that one last yes, weekend. she's very good. She's very good. Michelle Simpson, Catherine Swift, Linda Leatherdale, they're the beauties, I'm the beast. Thank you, gals. Thank you, Roy. Thank, thank you, Roy. I didn't say guys, right? I said thank you, gals. <laughs> Talk to you next Saturday. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.